0: Here now a translation from the 3rd chapter of Jonah. The word of the God came to Jonah a second time, saying, "Get up, Jonah, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim to it the divine message that I am speaking." So Jonah set out and went to Nineveh according to the divine idea. Nineveh was an exceedingly large city, a 3 days journey across the diameter Jonah began to journey into the city, going a day's walk. And he cried out, Forty days, and Nineveh shall be overwhelmed. And the people of Nineveh believed. They proclaimed a fast, and everyone great and small put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Then he had a proclamation made. By the decree of the king of Nineveh and his nobles, no human being or creature, no herd or flock, shall taste anything. They shall not feed, nor shall they drink water, Human beings and animals shall be covered with sackcloth, and they shall give a divine cry. All shall turn from their malcontent and from the hands of violence. The divine skillful may begin great comfort and turn to from fierce anger, and we will not be doomed. When God witnessed how Nineveh turned from violence and and malice, God changed its mind. The doom that threatened Nineveh ceased to be. Good
1: morning. I bring you greetings from Pullen Church, where when I told them what I was speaking about they did today, they said, well, go in there and do what we do. Just don't do it too hard. (laughs) It is a good congregation, and we invite you to join us as we march for justice on February 11th when we take to the streets with our sisters and brothers on Jones Street. And we invite you to join us as like-minded Baptists at the end of April when we host the Alliance of Baptists where William Barber and Naomi Tutu will be speaking and challenging us to be just people of faith in trying times. It's always lovely to be here in this congregation and as I say to anyone, if you both like or dislike what I say, see my parents. They (laughs) raised me this way. It's true. (laughs) Speaking of which, the Sunday evenings of my childhood in the late 1970s were reserved for three items. Campbell's tomato soup, grilled cheese sandwiches made by my dad in the family's cast-iron skillet, and Battlestar Galactica. (laughs) This science fiction series was a favorite in my home and featured Lauren Green as a general leading refugees across the galaxy in search of a new world after the evisceration of their own planet. Known for cutting-edge special effects, fast-paced action, and over-the-top dialogue by actors in barely covering the bottom costumes, Battlestar Galactica occupied the 8 o'clock time slot on our television. Yet, my memory of the show is haunted by words foreign to the weekly plot. We interrupt this regularly scheduled program to bring you the special news report. The 70s were filled with newsworthy events deemed sufficiently important to interrupt the sojourning of galactic refugees. The state of emergency and evacuation of Love Canal, a city built on toxic waste. The collision of commercial jets over San Diego, where hundreds were instantly killed. And the impeding financial crash and bankruptcy of municipalities across the Midwest, including Cleveland and Detroit. Despite the exciting futurism on our television, the contemporary reality was terrifying, and no event was as frightening to my preschool mind as the Camp David Accords. During the pilot episode of Battlestar Galactica on September 18, 1978, Camp David was the news event that interrupted the regularly scheduled program. As a child, my understanding of these historical talks between Egypt and Israel primarily focused on the conflict between these neighbors. Regularly, the television broadcasted images of militarized conflicts between the warring nations, including scenes of bombings, hijackings, and assassinations. These news reports were erroneously coupled with the biblical witness where stories were told in which Egyptians were portrayed as ruthless slave owners only worthy of their mass drownings at the hands of a vengeful god, small g. This cacophony of ideas swirled to produce an abundant fear of the only possible outcome. Total annihilation for us all. Thankfully, my understanding of world events was trumped by the intelligence and diplomacy of Jimmy Carter. Yet, President Carter was not the only key figure involved in bringing peace to the conflicts of the Middle East. The surprising initiator of the peace was the Egyptian president, Anwar Sadat, The bolstering of militarized victories during the 1973 October War propelled Sadat's popularity, and without the intervention of the United Nations Security Council and the Danish Prime Minister, Egypt could have settled conflict in the Middle East with non-diplomatic measures. Interestingly, intercession from foreign sources neither intimidated nor infuriated the Egyptian president. These events also did not drive Sadat and Egypt into isolation. In a moment that is divinely counterintuitive, Sadat becomes a hero of crossing borders. In an assertion that was equivalent to the formidable nature of Egyptian military, he began to seek peace. He persistently left Egypt to talk about respectful settlements for Palestinians, support of Israeli autonomy, and total military disarmament. In 1974, he traveled around his own country promoting peaceful relationships with all in the Middle East. In 1975, he ventured to the United States to meet with head of states and religious leaders, including a very contentious meeting with Billy Graham. In 1976 he journeyed to the Vatican and counseled with Pope Paul VI about a long-term peace with Israel that included the demilitarization of the Sinai Peninsula and the Golan Heights. Additionally he invited the Pope to Cairo to be the guest of the Egyptian government. In 1977 he traveled to Israel the occupiers of Egyptian territory, and spoke to their government about a comprehensive peace program for the entire region. In 1978, the peace treaty at Camp David was signed. This accomplishment did not occur without tension. Due to an oath sworn before God, again, small g, Israeli Prime Minister, Menachem Behan, Vowed to never dismantle an Israeli settlement, including the Yamit settlement of 3,000 Israelis in the Sinai Peninsula, this fatal obstacle was almost the undoing of the accords, and began and began defiantly packed to leave the talks, armed with a photograph of Begin's and his grandchildren. Sadat urged Carter to sign the photograph with love. Two, filling in the name of each individual grandchild. And then he prompted Carter to just, quote, try one more time. The following year, Sadat was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. And although Sadat's acceptance speech memorably calls for peaceful goodwill towards all people of the world, Carter and Begin attribute this peace to Sadat's well-wishes for his antagonist grandchildren. One wishes Jonah would have had the divine Sadat initiative in his approach to Nineveh. Often fixated with a sea storm scenario Serenario, where sailors capitulate Jonah to raging billows and the belly of some great beast, readers overlook the great complexity of human character and the ever-becoming and ever-moving presence of the divine. Sadly, this minor prophet gets relegated to very washed-down versions of children's songs and stories. Isn't it miraculous that God delivered Jonah from the belly of a whale? We exclaim as we overlook the true wonder embedded in this story. God wants to proclaim an ever-speaking divine idea to the people of Nineveh. Nineveh? Did we just read that correctly? The God of Israel wants the prophet to go to the capital city of its oppressors, the Assyrians? These Assyrians are not the ones chosen by Yahweh. They are foreign and unknown, they dismiss our provincial tongue of Hebrew for this trade dominating language of Akkadian. And they are ignorant of this true covenantal relationship in their worship of a female deity, Inanna. Jonah is a Hebrew. And his devotion to the people of Israel made him so certain that Yahweh committed a directional fumble that when he heard, Arise, Jonah, and go to Nineveh, he hot-footed to Joppa to take a slow boat to Tarshish. <laughs> Jonah's persistence is prominent in the short four chapters filled with not only a heavily populated Gentile metropolis, but with a multinational, multilingual crew of a ship onto which the prophet tries to escape. Jonah is so determined not to be involved with any of these non-Jewish people that when a mighty storm arises, he buries himself in the depths of the boat and falls asleep. And upon the arrival of the crew, who are overwhelmingly religiously and morally sensitive, Jonah contrives a deadly fell safe idea, and one that would have worked had there not been some divine interaction with a great fish. There is tremendous appeal to the safety and certainty of just taking care of yourself and your own. It becomes infectious and disguises itself as genuine judiciousness or grace. That makes us relate a little bit to Jonah. Who needs international mariners? Who needs Nineveh? Who needs Egyptians? Who needs Edneville? Who needs Seventh Avenue? Who needs all these others? The other has been a topic of philosophical and political debate in the past century with thinkers from Jacques Derrida to Edward Said, describing the reductive actions of labeling a person as someone who belongs to a subordinate social category. The practice of othering is the exclusion of persons who do not fit tightly defined norms of a dominant power group. Oh! They are just not like us. We have heard around playgrounds, conference tables, and too often in pulpits. Saeed in his classic Orientalism, identified the other as conceptually integral to the us versus them dichotomy that justifies colonialism, imperialism, and the superiority of one group over another. The identity of differences becomes a savage verb of denial, exclusion, and violence. Meanwhile, in the literal bowels of a big fish, Jonah foreshadows Karl Marx's comrade, Frederick Engel. Freedom is the recognition of necessity. So the prophet decides to cooperate with the divine mandate and begins a one man crusade in Nineveh with the results so epic, Billy Graham would have broken the first commandment. That's the one about coveting, by the way. (laughs) With only one third of the city diameter covered, the entire metropolis, from king to calf, rejects violence and malice while adopting a strict adherence to Mosaic laws. The divine love is moved about and within Nineveh, and the city peacefully flourishes. All is well in the land of Nineveh. All are well in the land of Nineveh. All are well. Except Jonah, who is incensed, God removed his singular prophetic motivation of damnation. At this moment, I imagine Jonah greatly resembles nothing so much as the southern plantation owner on the day Lincoln went to the Ford's theater. What will I do now? Who are we without these others? John Dewey, that famed progenitor of modern education, proclaimed, to know one item is to know its exact opposite. How would our identity be shaped if we did not know that which is diametrically opposed to our core moral? What would we be? Imagine what it would have meant to pick up the Times News and read that legislators in Raleigh had not only refused and rejected the Public Facilities Privacy and Security Act, HB2, The law that discriminates against transgender women and men, but reinstated protection for those discriminated at work, and ensured a fair living wage for all in the state, and promoted gender equity and protection for all people. What if we had read our government decided to divest in the profit of gun manufacturers and refocus police departments on community building? And not militarization. Suppose we read that Franklin Graham cast aside his disparaging comments about Muslims and began to understand different insights about the divinity through conversations with people of differing faiths. A true scandal would not be transgender and cisgender people communing or the sharing of ideas between people of different faiths. The real shock would be that our continual efforts against the opposition are obsolete and that our perception of the other as our enemy is no longer needed. While studying the Holocaust, I became fascinated with a top officer in charge of one of the death camps who was on trial for his involvement in the atrocities committed against Jewish people. His defense pivoted on three assertions. One, he had personally killed no one. Two, he had little control over the conditions of the camp, as he was only following orders. And three, Given these unimaginable conditions of the concentration camp, many would have died had they not been sustained by their hatred for him, which his words and actions fostered. It's a fascinating but specious theorem because it conflates defiance, anger, and hatred. Each is a powerful tool, and each comes with ample amount of fury and determination. Anger and dissent come with moral credibility. This is evidenced by many groups in our own society that have progressed the cause of justice. Confusing dissent with hatred, on the other hand, is a slippery precipice because the end goal is fulfilling your self-will, not freedom for people. This is not dissent. It is solely defiance, and it has consequential drawbacks. First, self-identity and image is always at the subjugation of your constructed enemy. Nineveh for Jonah, black lives for a white country, trans lives for straight legislators, healthcare clinics for right-to-life believers, The decline becomes even more treacherous when the definition of our self-worth is based more on our opposition to the other than on our pursuit for a full and abundant life for all. You despise sin more than you revere humanity, and you hate evil more than you love that which is good. Therefore, you cannot get justice and compassion in alignment. It seems to be the core of Jonah's problem. After Jonah began to care, and the text shows us that he cared about many things, including a plant, he was more bothered than concerned. His relationship with the people of Nineveh is superficial at best as he heralds world words of destruction in their city streets. He never stops to keep covenant with an Assyrian. In the text, Jonah never speaks to a widow, an orphan, an elder, a noble person, one who is imprisoned, another who needs food, one who needs clothing, one that is the stranger. His focus is being the champion of a just cause. And Jonah does so at the expense of compassion. And the short text seems to warn that loving justice without practicing compassion is a solely unjust endeavor. We are all aware that our current social and political climate is a divine beckoning for congregations, faith communities, and individuals to be actively involved in the work of justice for our society. While the excitement of protest and dissent are attractive, I know, I've been at the North Carolina General Assembly a lot lately, (laughs) it is worth remembering there is but one divine commitment. Freedom. This freedom is without human suffering and without human subjugation. This freedom doesn't draw borders, nor does it construct wall. This freedom is brimming with involvement and void of isolation. Freedom is that divine essence that moved across waters of the deep and on top of high mountains while driving us through wilderness and resting us on promised lands. The sacred from the inception of time has wanted to be freed from temples and tabernacles, and the holy has continually wanted to be freed from kings and queens and principalities and powers. And being created in that beatific vision, God wants people to be freed, freed from unjust laws that demoralize and dehumanize people because of sexual orientation, gender identity, or differing abilities, freed from restrictive labor practices that focus on keeping people chained to property, freed from political structures that threaten deportation for Latinos and Muslims, who daily, with the thoughts of their mind and the sweat of their brows, contribute to our communities. Freed from corporations that place bottom-line profits above health care and medical attention deserved by every citizen of this state. And freed from stand-your-ground laws that will let white citizens freely shoot unarmed African-American women, men, and children in our streets. Ending these sufferings is what caring is all about. This is what our churches should be all about. And it is complicated to care. And Jonah reminds us that if we are perplexed about the enormity of this divine call, we will be more plagued if we do not answer. If it is complicated to have relationships with the other, then it is more desperate to have no relationships at all. If it is complicated trying to enact change that quells violence in our streets, then that is not as complex as trying to cope with the atrocities caused by the status quo. If it is frightening to go to neighborhoods and streets where no one looks like us or speaks our language, then it will be even more terrifying when our communities are emptied and our streets are silenced. (coughs) And finally, is it even a question when in our heart of hearts we know that we are never more free than when we are captivated by divine compassion, and we are never more in control than when we are lost in holy justice? Isolated and saddened, Jonah's story ends with the prophet pouting under a plant, feeling betrayed and once again contemplating death. He can neither imagine himself without an enemy, nor envision his adversaries as his companion. God has no trouble dreaming of a new world where Hebrews and Assyrians are united. The creatures of Nineveh, all the creatures of Nineveh, lack no vision of a future where their current faith is enhanced by a new religious practice. Yet, Jonah is sadly deficient in seeing himself as anything other than what he already is. He cannot hold on to nothing, nothing, except staunch particularism and pride. He can grasp no other idea but grievance. The moral participation and prophetic imagination so readily available in Ezekiel, Isaiah, Malachi, Joel, Jeremiah. Well, it's absent in his prescriptive mantras. In the liturgical year, we rest for a while in the season of epiphany. The portion of the year whose celebration is twofold. One, It commemorates the manifestation of the divine to everyone. And two, it observes that an aspect of our faith should lend itself to insight and revelation. For both of these criteria, Jonah seems a very appropriate text to propel a very living and abundant faith. Yet, Jonah is not a story to celebrate divine control over unidentified oceanic creatures. Rather, it is an injunction on meticulously crafting a certain and dictate view of the divine that is so narrow that it has neither room for people nor possibility. For a prophet, Jonah can see very little as he fails to recognize the potential in others, in God, and in himself. Luckily, we have had other prophetic voices that call our attention to the disseminating of these constructed barriers of the others and ourself. In Down at the Cross, Letter from a Region in my Mind, James Baldwin articulates the strained relationship between race and religion, detailing his experience as a youth in Harlem Pentecostal Church and his exposure to the islamic ideas of others in harlem. By the end of the letter, baldwin calls for all races to transcend what they think they know, what they think they understand, and what they think they believe. He writes, "If we And now I mean the relatively conscious whites and the relatively conscious blacks who must, like lovers, insist on or create the consciousness of each other. Do not fault in this duty now. We may be able, handful that we are, to end this racial nightmare and achieve our country and change the history of this world. Baldwin suggests that society, as both place and ideal, is handicapped by narrowness of thinking and self-definition. Only by expanding perception and experience can the United States and the people living there become fulfilled and honored in the way it can and perhaps could be. Two, we have the example of Anwar Sadat, A Sunni Islamic man who, after some divine counterintuitive notion, begins to think of himself as something other than a war-decorated general. Not only does he think of himself differently, he begins to see the other as transformed. His historical enemies, once enslaved on a mythological scale, are now begetters and caregivers of children. And those children are not merely members of a tribe or a sect, but are citizens of all society and promises of divine hope. He becomes a true warrior of intelligence and might, not because he is armed with weaponry and brute force, but because he holds closely together justice and compassion on this day, churches and communities of faith stand on a threshold of the unknown. Like the days since November 8th, next Friday will continue to bring attacks on those who are the most vulnerable and most excluded from society. Latinos will face great fear and threat of deportation. Muslims will face the anxiety and perils of a national religious registry. Queer women and men will be subjugated by laws disguised as acts of religious liberty. Transgender people will have their identity controlled by the state house and not by divine blessing. Greed will continue to be our national idol while the poor receive false hope and empty words from this cococracy and people of color will suffer genocide at the hands of a militarized and robotic police force. Like Jonah, the church and its people will have a choice. Go directly into the heart of Nineveh or flee rapidly on a boat in the opposite direction. Regardless of the choice, the divine idea will come again And again and again, and it will always seek to interrupt our regularly scheduled programs. In that moment, I hope we utter the words so often spoken by our Benedictine comrades in prayer God, give me the grace to do what is not my nature. God, Give us the grace to do what is not our nature until it is. Amen.